name's Neil Sharp. I'm a partner of Penn Partnership and your host for this podcast. Today, my guest is Marcus Ineson. Marcus is the founder and chief executive of an organization called GovEnhance, which was started five years ago to pursue his passion for the delivery of high quality and regulatory compliant patient services. Marcus has been a registered nurse for over 30 years and held a number of senior clinical and commercial roles in healthcare organizations, CSOs, and also med tech companies. Marcus has been involved in the build of various new healthcare services from the ground up, leading statutory, regulatory and operational preparedness through to the actual service commencement. He's also designed and delivered many different patient support programs and has a really in-depth view of some of the frontline practical aspects of changing the whole paradigm in terms of how organizations such as pharma companies can engage with their end users. I often call them patients, as do many other people, but Marcus has got a very strong view on this, and you'll hear that in the podcast episode. And the points he makes about language and about how we therefore think about the people that we're serving are really important. So we've split this podcast into two sections. The first, this one, is looking at some of the general aspects of how the traditional delivery model for healthcare and indeed for life sciences is being put under pressure by changing consumer expectations and indeed what the sector needs to do to try and meet some of those challenges, particularly in relation to different types of companies collaborating with one another to create completely new and different ways of serving people's needs. And in the second interview with Marcus, I talk a lot about some of the specific considerations that we need to take into account when designing and building successful patient support programs. Marcus has got some great forthright views based on a lot of experience. And so hopefully he'll pique your interest. And if you disagree with something or indeed agree with it, then please comment and please get in touch because we'd like to start a debate around some of these things. And it's very much aligned to the kind of work and thinking that we do within Penn. So... Without further ado, let's welcome Marcus. Hi, Marcus. Uh, well, first of all, thank you and welcome to the show and um, really grateful for you joining me today. As I said in the introduction, you've got a wide and varied set of experiences gained through a number of really interesting roles over the years. So before we start any of that, can we start off by just you telling us a little bit about your story on your own words and how you've ended up what you're doing what you do today yeah sure and and thank you for asking me to come on this is actually my first ever podcast as a guest although i've hosted <laughs> a few so it's yeah. a it's a very different experience so uh, yes i have had quite a varied career i think i'm one of those people it's quite difficult to put in a box but fundamentally i'm a registered nurse and very proudly a registered nurse for 34 years. And even though my work and practice is very different from most of the profession, in the context of the customer that we're talking about today, I've always considered the people who are treated with medicines or whose health supported by services and products that I'm involved with as my customers, even if I'm acting through an inter intermediary. I started nursing a very long time ago. I trained in Newcastle. I started in October 1984. And uh, that was prior to degrees in nursing being 
common. So I was an NHS employee from day one. And it was to all intents and purposes an apprentice type model in those days. When I qualified, I worked on urology at the Freeman Hospital up there. Uh, But after a couple of years, having been encouraged by my then father-in-law, who was in the pharma industry, was a hospital rep with MSD. Uh, I applied for and got a sales job with Allen and Hambrys, as was uh, not long after they went, uh, they were uh, merged with Claxo, uh, and after that moved through a number of companies in different sales roles in primary care and hospitals. So a pretty standard start to a pharma career, and I, I was lucky to work with a number of great managers and mentors. I think we have, we sometimes forget what great people we have working in in pharma and how we develop people. And eventually I I got a sales manager's role in a CSO. And quite honestly, at that point, I thought I'd left nursing and the delivery of care and was on a purely commercial path. Uh, But by a a quirk of fate, the uh, CSO team I was working in at Innovex, remember Innovex now, multiple iterations through to IQVIA. The team I was working in were being toopy to a client and I, and I didn't want to go. Uh, I didn't like the culture of the client and conversely, I loved the culture at Innovex. So I looked around the business and spotted a role setting up the training for the nurse teams that Innovex had. And uh, in the part of the business that was then called HMS, Health Management Services, and I got it and I I was a nurse again in my head I was a nurse again and it was my job to make sure that um, the nurses that worked in the organization were really well prepared and really able to deliver the best care and interventions they could on the programs they were working on and and I progressed from there to second line managers roles designing and running what most people would call PSPs now although I would argue in a much broader sense than those we are commonly seeing currently. And maybe we'll come back to that because I I think PSPs become ubiquitous with something quite narrow. And that was, you know, that time was great. But eventually the big primary care blockbusters lost their protection. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, I'm so old, I can remember primary care blockbusters. And, um, you know, as a result of that, pharma shed large amounts of CSO uh, and headcount resource and often the first thing to go was the nurse team resource because that was seen at the time as the most luxury or expendable expense at the time Uh, and I really do think it's very interesting the thing that improved the experience of the people who took the medicine was the first thing to go and maybe that's something we go back to as well because you know how early even now does pharma really think about what its PSPs look like to make sure it's as good as it can be? Also, what drives the decision to stop a program and offboard participants? There's a lot of good talk at the moment about the experience of people who use services and the treatments provided. I'm not sure it's a real commitment yet apart from doing what's entirely necessary from a market access perspective. There are exceptions, but in general, uh, I think it's still treated as a bit of a uh, nice to have or necessary in a certain form. So when pharma 
uh, external resource imploded. I, I was looking for a job and I got an amazing job as head of nursing at one at an enteral feeding company. Uh, and for anybody who uh, isn't sure, enteral feeds are artificial nutrition delivered into the gastrointestinal tract directly through either an NG tube, a gastrostomy or a jejunostomy. Uh, in the UK, as well as providing enteral feed, the usual model is that the company provides all the pumps, plastics and ancillaries and nursing care for people using enteral nutrition in the community. And um, that was a, a little bit of a, a shock because having moved from running pharma-sponsored PSPs, all of a sudden I'm running a service that's supporting 20,000 people using enteral nutrition spread across the whole of the UK. It was a huge challenge, but it's also where I fell in love with working in artificial nutrition. And that persists today in the work I do with a medical device called NGPod. Uh, the clinical community of, uh, involved and the people who use artificial nutrition are so inspirational. It's a, it's a real privilege to work with them. Uh, it, it's something, it's my real passion project. And But that was the role that really focused my interest on understanding the journeys of people who end up using treatment services and med tech to manage their conditions. What could commercial healthcare organisations do to really add value and improve outcomes for people who for all or part of their journey use an intervention that a life science company provides? There was, and I think still is, a tendency to start where someone is prescribed or given a company's product and end either when they are taken off it or stop using it. And we'll probably come back to this as well, but it strikes me as quite small thinking, you know, and there's an opportunity to think bigger about, uh, about how uh, life science companies do support more of a journey. And that that sort of brings us about up to date where uh, we have our own business, GovEnhance, and we focus on how world-class healthcare can be delivered to people within a statutory and regulatory framework and codes of conduct in a safe and effective way, using the most appropriate methods for that person and their needs as defined by them as well as the healthcare professional. We work with the private and public healthcare providers as well as pharma and medtech industries, often to help them realise what's possible rather than starting with what isn't. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, that really sets the scene perfectly. You've got so much experience with the type of work that you do now and that you've done. And then there's a lot of areas that I'm, I'd love to explore with you today. And, you know, I'd love to start with what I guess is a really simple, um, deceptively simple question, which you, you touched on right at the very beginning of your introduction, really, around the customer. I mean, the theme of the show is the rise of the customer, and I'd love to explore with you who the customer is in this context. Uh, let's just get that straight, because I think it, it really helps listeners when we're talking about these sorts of things to um, to kind of gravitate their minds around what we're actually talking about when we talk about customers. I mean, historically, pharma... I guess it's fair to say I've focused a lot of their attention on the healthcare professionals, but there is a growing realisation that, let me just use the word for a moment, the patient is the real customer. But should we call them patients? I mean, I, I think you've got quite a strong view on this. You know, is that the right term or, or should we be thinking differently about it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, 
I, I do have quite strong views on it. I, I perhaps sometimes express them more profoundly um, th than I should. But um, yes, I in general, I really dislike the word patient because it's so loaded for me. And, you know, historically and still currently in a lot of situations, a patient is someone who seems to be expected to give up their self-determination and have stuff done to them by healthcare professionals and the healthcare industry. Uh, as soon as you come into contact with healthcare, people start using pronouns to own you. You know, people refer to uh, my patient, our patient. I even hear it used in pharma marketing to refer to people who are treated with that brand's uh, brand team's products as our patients, uh, and and they're not your patients, and they have become such because they've decided, not because they've decided to, but because a clinician has prescribed a treatment, and that pharma company expects them to take it because they're a patient and they should do as they're told. Very you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's 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 really interesting when when you end up talking about you know, PSPs, and, and, and often people start talking with, you know, uh, great aspirations, but you very rapidly often get condensed down to adherence and persistence, and that's what we're looking at. I've read a, a lot of RFPs that have lofty language, but what they really want is, you know, just keep the patient on this product as long yep. as possible. Now, going back to the patient piece, I realise the use of the term is really deeply engranged. It's almost certainly more convenient for people to use patient to convey a status of an individual who's using the healthcare system rather than reprogramming everyone to use different terminology. And in some circumstances, I have to use it, even though I rail against it, uh, because I have no alternative if I want to communicate clearly to someone. But after I establish the context, I tend to move away uh, as quickly as possible because Words have power, and, and I believe changing how we refer to people who interact with the healthcare system in its broadest sense would change how we behave towards them and how involved we allow them to be in decisions about their own healthcare choices. You know, we know from the work on PAMS and other behavioural-based approaches that if someone is more engaged and involved in decision-making about their own healthcare and the better the outcomes get for them. And the healthcare system, even where PAMS is currently used in pharma-sponsored programs, it's a bit cursory at the moment. It's aimed at improving adherence and persistence over a relatively short term, uh, not taking the individual as a whole and really impacting the health outcomes. You know, with regard to actual delivered programs of engagement versus the lofty aspiration. My feeling and experience is that currently in what they deliver, farmers' gods are a bit too small. So, you know, I, I guess that one of the things is uh, what term do we use? Mm. And we, we're talking about customers and it's actually quite difficult to replace patient with one word because the cultural nuance that's built into into patient but customer to me feels inappropriate and it, it feels quite transactional i guess if the care or treatment is carried out in a facility you could use guest but again 
that probably doesn't work in a virtual or digital setting. So I often just start with a person who uses, is being treated for, requires support with. It's longer. It, it, it's harder to say than patient. But if you start with person, it immediately reminds you this is an individual who has the right to self-determination, even if after you have discussed the options with them, they choose something that you would rather they didn't. You know, they, they, uh, I, I've personally been in situations where I thought I was having a discussion with a clinician about options and I picked one and they kind of went, yeah, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> and um, you have to be really, really quite assertive in healthcare if you don't want to do for a good reason of your own uh, what a healthcare professional wants you to do. Um, so, you know, I think starting with thinking of a person, you know, provided they have the capacity to make a decision and um, establishing lack of capacity and best interest decisions is a whole different conversation. But most people do have the capacity to make their own choices and therefore should be allowed to exercise it. So I think if... You know, we started with the a person or an individual, then we are less likely to take that paternalistic "I'm going to do stuff to you" approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting, Mark. Because I mean, like the number of times I've had this conversation with people, not just on the show, but but generally in the work that we do, and you know, you've you really start to make me think there around the connotations that come with language and 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 everything you said there is uh, is is getting my mind spinning as to. Uh, uh, you know the way in which we just phrase things, apart from anything else, and the the conversations we have, let alone the, um, uh, the what we write and and the sort of enduring nature of stuff that gets written down as well. So, okay, I'll, I'll take that on board and I'll try and adjust my language as we go through the uh, the podcast. So that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about the sort of broad impact of changing people's expectations on pharma and healthcare delivery. So consumers, customers, people read more, they know more, they've got access to more information about health and that changes the dynamic within the doctor's room. You know, it also means that some patients just simply expect more from doctors. If we believe all of that's true, you know, the expectation is higher and I guess somewhere along the line they might expect more from pharma as well than just eat these pills every day and you'll feel better, which is kind of what you were saying at the beginning there. So that poses a couple of questions to me, which is, Given the ingrained nature of some of the cultures that exist and everything you've just said, you know, how is the life sciences equipped to cater for those changing needs? And, you know, does it call upon perhaps other organizations, you know, providing services for people, particularly around diagnostics and devices? And, and you know, how does this sort of healthcare community need to evolve going forward? Okay, uh, that's a very big question. Um, yeah. And uh, so I think... Starting at the consulting Dr. Google piece, I think this scenario, and it, and again, it may be a symptom of that we expect people who need healthcare to do as they're told. It's often characterized as a bad thing that yep. people are going in armed with information that they have searched for themselves, which, in fairness, so there's a lot of rubbish out there and it might be correct or it might not be relevant to their condition but so, or sometimes it might be correct 
But going back to the making a choice that healthcare professional would prefer they didn't make, maybe it's correct, but the healthcare professional was rather it wasn't. We have to remember that as well as the bad information, there's also an awful lot of good information out there. So we should encourage people to seek it if they wish to. Uh, It's also true that while people do go in armed with information, many don't. And the expectation from healthcare professionals is that they will still be the fount of all knowledge. So I don't think we should assume everyone's doing their own research. I think it is. And it's always going to be a continuum. And on balance, where people are better informed, we should welcome it. Not just because a more engaged person is likely to have better outcomes, but also because they may also be able to better articulate the issues they want help with more clearly, even if that's being better able to describe symptoms or understand therapeutic options. You know, just doing some research and looking at how certain things are referred to would help an individual explain to a healthcare professional who have their own language. We all know that, you know, they have their own abbreviations, they have their own language. And we slip into it in the life science industry really easily. So having people who can explain what their issues are in those terms, I guess is to be encouraged. Someone who is better informed is also more able to participate in agreeing a plan with a healthcare professional and is more likely to stick to it because they understand what the benefits are for them. And therefore, to go into that adhere and persist language, again, uh, they may adhere and persist even if there are no perceptible benefits immediately or there are side effects. You know, we have to remember a lot of people drop off therapy or stop an intervention because they get side effects before they get benefit. And there are some things that can be done to help them through that period and uh, so that they get a beneficial outcome. Uh, I think sometimes we're a little bit shy about grasping the nettle of explaining the initial downside. We sort of respond to it if it happens, even if we know it's going to happen quite often. So I, I think that part of people being better informed is really important. And on What can the life science sector do? On a very basic level, I think we can make sure people are signposted to validated, reliable sources of information that make it really understandable. You know, there are great materials out there provided by patient organisations and charities that are written in clear, understandable language and intended for non-medically trained people. It's easy to think that we might also sign post people to organisations like NICE or SIGN in the UK or Royal College Guidance. But those are written for mainly a HCP audience. And even when there's lay language version of it included, it can still be confusing or just plain too long for most people. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, Neil, but in lockdown, my um, my attention span has diminished yep. massively. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to make myself read books again just to just to improve it we're in the um if it's more than five minutes on youtube i don't listen i don't watch it phase so i think you know helping people find good information is is a very straightforward thing we can do another way is to broaden the offering for people accessing psps and engagement programs don't just offer information and support on your product broaden it out and extend it beyond the treatment 
and the treatment period that makes you money and offer a longer experience. And I know people will wave the ABPI and the ABHI code at me, but there are ways of providing people with services that are not directly related to a product that can work within the statutory and regulatory framework and professional codes. You just have to decide that you are serious about being a partner in healthcare or even a direct deliverer of healthcare and not just the bit that you are interested in. It's another one of those areas where industry talks a good game, but doesn't really play it on a consistent basis. No, no, very good points, very good points. And it, it certainly resonates with me. I mean, if you take what you've just said, you know, I was having a conversation the day with another guest on the podcast about, for example, the rare disease area, where if you're in stage three trials and you start introducing a PSP or thinking about a PSP, quite often, quite a substantial cohort of the people that are actually in the trial will end up being your patients anyway because there's so few of them in your in your area and therefore they'll almost become dependent on the PSP offering or the services that you're providing during the trial and you've kind of got a I'll say a moral obligation to keep going but it, it feels wrong to stop it and then say we're well, going to have to wait for two years now until we hopefully launch this drug before you can now benefit from those services again so uh... yes and actually that's something I've worked with a few clients on now where you are, you know, biologics and in effect the PSP may last 12 months and 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 my challenge has been what are you going to do at month 12? And it's something that people just don't seem to be thinking about very much. It's almost the PSP is done because it's necessary for market access. So we do that bit and then we stop. And I think there are a lot of options for continuing it, maybe not in the same form, but there is, you know, I think there is that people who've been on a PSP often just fall off a cliff at the end of a arbitrarily determined period. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that, yeah, you can see the implications of that from an individual perspective. So, okay. I mean, one of the themes that runs throughout all of that, and you've you've made the point on several times here, and, and it's it's crystal clear resounding in my head, which is, you know, this this notion of using one provider for everything, not only does it create the risk of a one size fits all, but, you know, someone's not going to be brilliant at everything everywhere in the world. And so, you know, this this concept of thinking about who might be best to give you the best type of resources and capabilities does call for a variety of organizations, I guess, to, to build these things. And it reminds me of work we're doing at the moment with NHS Wales, which is going to come up in a, a future podcast, which is is all about how do you bring together the resources and capabilities of different stakeholders within the delivery of healthcare to provide the best possible patient outcome. And, and a word that gets used a lot in this context is ecosystem. So this idea that you bring together all of these stakeholders and they work together in perfect harmony, like an ecosystem that isn't damaged and actually it's working well and it's supporting one another, which is Sounds great in theory, sounds really easy, but as we know, it's really difficult in practice. It, it has all sorts of jeopardy involved in that. I mean, what do you think are some of the problems here and, and how do we overcome them to, to create ecosystems that really do deliver the kinds of things that we're talking about here to the best possible outcome for the people that they're trying to serve? Yeah, I, I think there are a number of issues that, how that contribute to the difficulty of coordination 
of different organisations out there in you know in in the public healthcare system and um, i'm also doing some work with nhs wales uh, which um, which is very interesting uh, they seem to be uh, really pushing forward on some interesting stuff so historically uh, healthcare has been quite siloed and to a large extent still is and i think one of the biggest things here is the limitation of the technology and you know there are still plenty of organizations who have uh, paper notes and you know there are there are more and more people implementing digital systems but you know with a with a paper system it's difficult sharing information within a single institution never mind between different ones that are geographically or administratively separate so i think the limitation of technology and the pace of implementation is often one of the key problems and even when digital patient records are being implemented. It's it, it's still very slow. It's very patchwork. In the UK, there's some capability to share records between primary and secondary care, but that's often um, uh, just read-only on one side. So it's a, 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 sometimes one side can see everything and the other side can only see part of it. So, you know, we're definitely not there. There are some good initiatives where the hospital and community services are implementing a shared record between the community healthcare and secondary care, such as around Exeter. They, they put one system in uh, for the hospital and the community healthcare. But even then, the GP records are not included and they only have visibility. So certain parts of that health ecosystem can talk to each other in a relatively tight local geography but not all of them so I, I really think that that the work that nhs x as they're as they're now called are doing trying to get that visibility is is really important but it, it's moving very slowly i guess the life science sent, sector does potentially have a role to play in um, providing me uh, cash and resource to support the integration of care but that needs to be seen as a long-term investment without the intention of making a direct return on investment the return may come downstream in a better understanding of an emerging healthcare ecosystem or new ways of demonstrating the value of a treatment or intervention that's only possible uh, because of the use of integrated technology in healthcare but you know i think you, you probably almost need to be making some investments on the basis that uh, you're not going to get anything back for it. You know, in, in medtech, I'm involved with medical device development as well, and providers are wanting to be able to understand in granular detail what a device or consumable is used on which person and be able to pull the result of a test and monitoring straight into patient records in real time. That's going to be a differentiating factor going for, forward. So medtech at every level makes to sh makes need to make sure they're on board with that integration process. And I, and I think you know healthcare systems are increasingly want to be able to integrate with each other, and life science companies are increasingly going to be expected to seamlessly integrate with those systems. Mm, interesting. So. It comes down to the data, yeah, age-old problem in this world. Um, and from what you're saying there, if I've understood you correctly, it almost needs a kind of 
a life science involvement almost as a benefactor to help stitch this stuff together to actually sort of say, look, I'm not going to necessarily make a bunch of money out of this drug, but actually a long-term view that says I'm, I am participating in the knitting together of an ecosystem for the greater benefit. And obviously downstream that might well benefit me, but you know, we're not quite sure how yet. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, you see, I think some companies are are starting to do that, which which is great. But you know, I think at this point in the evolution of that integration, I think I think it has to be seen as pretty philanthropic, mm. um, you know, and and not not that commercial. No, okay. So either a life science company or maybe the Gates Foundation might be a better place to go for that. Um, yeah, that yeah. But Bill's got deep pockets. <laughs> Filling the oh sorry emptying them rapidly I think in terms yeah, of yeah, some of the stuff yeah. that he's doing yeah okay and and I guess that's a that's a wonderful pivot into my next uh, sort of second to last area really which is uh, reputation I mean I guess if if life science companies in particular were to do that visible to the outside world in terms of what they were doing that may well assist them in creating a reputation for doing philanthropic things even but also doing things for the the greater good as opposed to necessarily the perception that they're doing things simply to fill their pockets each time i mean there was something on the news this morning about a pharma company or pharma companies you know increasing the price of drugs by about three thousand percent in order to uh, in the the minds of the person on radio four you know effectively fill their pockets Um, i'm sure there were other market access considerations there but with regards to reputation i mean we know that life sciences consistently scores low against other industry sectors on any benchmark. And we know it's historically based. And, you know, the point you made earlier, which is, and, and I experienced it as well, you know, people in life sciences don't get up in the morning and think, right, how can I stitch people up today? You know, they're, they're generally obsessed with life and making life better and longer and healthier. So what, what is it going to take to turn this around? I mean, is it, the kind of stuff you're talking about there where they, they take a, a significant role in doing things for ecosystems or healthcare systems in order to deliver outcomes without necessarily a, a direct commercial linkage or, or is it communication? I mean, what, what's it going to take for this sector to improve its reputation? I think there's, a, there's an opportunity right now built on what I think most people recognize as the great work that pharma and some specific companies in pharma have done in meeting the challenge of the pandemic you know and working in ways that no one has ever done before to deliver a result that has uh, rapidly changed the the prospects for the world during covid-19 i think there's an opportunity i think pharma life sciences need to be a bit braver about being visible Mm. about what it does and also maybe get involved more you know i I mentioned earlier things like insourcing the high value elements of psp if a company wants to differentiate itself and ultimately perhaps drive clinician or patient preference then you're going to have to do that kind of thing. If you outsource the delivery of your programs and your engagement, you will always be, it's always company X on behalf of company Y. The provider gets the credit for a good service if you're getting it. If the service isn't isn't good, the, the company paying for it gets the flack. And, you know, I, I guess that's about the closest you can get to a life science company interacting directly with 
the consumer and building you know that bottom-up reputation you know you, you quoted an example radio four of the you know uh, alleged price fixing you know there are going to be rogues in we, we all know there are rogues in every industry and we all know that sometimes people don't behave well um i think you know the the, the life science industry uh, behaves overall extremely well i think they just have to be prepared to shout about it a bit more and not always back away from visibility and mm-hmm. uh, and own what they do you know and put your badge on it and you know we talked about the people have have people involved in talking to people who use products so you know if you were in sourcing have those people that we know are fanatical about giving people great service and outcomes have them deliver that and feel proud to that that's part of the organization that demonstrates it care it cares by delivering great care and experience and you know i think the life science industry contributes an awful lot to a lot of economies and i think that that gives them a certain amount of influence uh, and i think that you know we've seen recently certain politicians uh, take advantage of their positional power to put the blame on on pharma companies for something that was probably of the politicians making i mm-hmm. i feel deeply for az they had the guts to stick their heads above the parapet along with pfizer and moderna you know they're obviously the companies that have got vaccines out but also a number of other companies that haven't got there yet you know and i think they've been treated appallingly and i think that they should work behind the scenes to point out what they um this is a very personal opinion you know uh, that, that uh, uh, to explain how that shouldn't happen again you know, because I think it's entire. I think it was entirely unacceptable, and I think a lot of people are very clear about where the errors were made around vaccine supply mm. in different mm. markets, and it wasn't with the pharma companies, despite what politicians would like us to believe, and maybe even convince themselves of. Maybe maybe that's as far as I'll go on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 absolutely, and and you know, here here is is what I say to the sentiment there. I think it's um. I, I would agree with that, and I think what you're saying is own it, be proud of it, talk about it, and and it's often said. And certainly, I, I reflect back on the conversation I had with Paul Sims in this series, where we talked about a very similar thing, and Paul was of the same ilk. You know, there was a there was an element of understanding the unintended consequences of some of the regulatory frameworks and the kind of restrictions by which people can and can't say things, which. I think has certainly dampened down um, the appetite for for sticking one's head above the parapet at times. But absolutely, and I, I agree with you entirely about the vaccine stuff. So, okay, final area then. Where is all this going to end up in your view? I mean, uh, you know, a key factor in the rise of the customer in in many sectors, not just life sciences, is that there are new entrants that often get described as disruptors because they're doing something different. You know, people talk about the uberization of customer experience leading to increased customer expectations, i.e. they've set the bar to a level very quickly by disrupting and therefore the expectations are that everyone can operate at least at that level. And so moving on from that becomes even more difficult. So, I mean, just sort of 
just taking something very specific, you know, what, what impact do you think things like or organisations such as Google and Amazon coming into healthcare and coming into these industries are going to have? And you know, what's it going to do to healthcare professionals' experience and patient experience? So I've used that word again. But you know, w- w- where is all this going to end up? I mean, obviously, you've got some very first-hand experience of how to do things, how not to do things, and the importance of data and all those sort of stuff. But people fear these tech giants quite often, and they feel that it might be a cataclysmic end to the participation of certain companies within the sector because they'll come in and take over things. How, how do you see it? Well, on on one level the tech giants getting involved in healthcare it terrifies me from a, a, a privacy and a resource allocation uh, perspective, especially when they partner with governments. And uh, yesterday we saw the uh, profit announcements. You know, they, these mm. companies um, could buy some countries uh, multiple times over. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's very difficult for governments to resist what these companies want and you know that we've seen in the uk the current government have pretty much under the radar harvested all the gp records and made it available to commercial entities when you think add add to that big tech's ability to track what you do and where you do it online in reality it's pretty scary starting to think about falling into the wrong hand scenario and let's face it we have multiple examples where it does i think the thing that we should potentially be excited about in tech is not the great beer moths of tech it's the startups i think they'll be the innovators now ultimately if it's good they'll get bought up by one of the big boys and uh, you know and, and and but i think there are enough people out there who set up to help with a niche issue who provide solutions for a defined group and can integrate with other systems rather than one big solution that you must choose to opt into and then it's hard to extract yourself from you know we i think we need to create health tech that the user can truly control and again it goes down to that self-determination of the individual uh, and so i think they need to be able to control it at quite a granular level and and possibly that's where the role of regulation should come in and i think we've got to make it easy for people to opt in and opt out of different health tech and also make it so that it's easy for them to give people who they really want to share that with access but also stop the access if they want to you know and i guess i'm thinking about that blockchain concept you know that uh, that um, we haven't really seen get down to a consumer level yet i think healthcare is absolutely the way that that could be used. I mean, we need to make the individual the controller of their own health data so that they're not owned by anyone. You know, that you do, you know, we do not become Google's patients, you know, and owned by a tech giant and not a clinician and not a healthcare institution. And it'll be a hard battle because this is obviously big tech always wants you to put all your eggs in their basket and harvest the value of your data along with everyone else who subscribes all in with them you know and that's we know that's why all this stuff is free i think for me healthcare and my health information it's always been off limits and i think we should really focus on controlling our own data now because big tech is leaning into our health data now 
I want to be able to provide share my healthcare data with the best provider for specific, my specific needs in a moment of time and then move that data or share it with someone else in a way I control. Mm. That's how I think innovation will happen uh, and we'll end up with cutting edge world beating health services. They'll evolve not from one big provider, but from connectivity of multiple specialist providers. That said, uh, there are opportunities for collaboration with big tech and life sciences. But I think life sciences need to be prepared to take some risks. You know, if you look at, you know, we're, we're understanding more and more about the impact lifestyle changes and choices can have on uh, on our health and often in very specific conditions you know i mentioned the work i do in nutrition you know food is medicine and you know if life science companies are prepared to partner with non-pharma non-med tech companies it might end up that the non-medical approach has as good or uh, even better impact if it's delivered properly and supported, you know, using tech than a medical intervention. So I think there are opportunities to partner to augment a medical treatment with good lifestyle elements of a overall treatment package. But there is also a risk to the life sciences companies in doing that. Thankfully, I don't have to worry about that. I'm in the health outcomes, whatever the best way of achieving them is business. So um, it's not a problem I have to wrestle with. No. Okay. Thank you. And and so, you know, what I'm taking from that is it's it's once again, it comes back to this this new skill that we've we've all got to learn, but particularly the life science companies and healthcare delivery agencies, if I can call them that, I've got to learn, which is partnering ecosystems, working out who's best resourced to deliver best in class at different points here but coupled with some kind of revolution that means that the individual owns the data and has control over the data which sounds like it's feasibly possible but it sounds like quite a big step but an interesting view of the future thank you for that right thank you so much for for sharing so much of your knowledge and um your your views on things which has been very specific to the work that you do in life sciences and in healthcare, uh, particularly. Just as a, a very quick roundup at the end, just something I ask all of my guests in the theme of the rise of the customer, because it's it's always fascinating to get a personal view on what good customer experience means to people. But you know, thinking about customer centricity, and what do you mean? What do you think, rather, being truly customer centric actually means in practice? I, I think for me, it's. It's really about surprising people about how good the service you give is. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's always nice to get the service you expect, but that's what you expect. I think it's when organizations almost anticipate your needs and go further than you feel they have to is is what's being truly customer-centric. Okay. Okay. Good one. And and so, can you bring that to life? Then, can you recall an experience you've had that really defines fantastic customer experience? Um, yes, and and actually, it's one that has driven uh, my buying preferences for about twenty years. Because I am an unashamed Apple fanboy, and I have just about every device they make, and I've had several versions. And it's based on one initial customer experience about 20 years ago. And when my eldest daughter was about 10, she wanted an iPod for her birthday. So we bought the smallest iPod 
Mini at the time, you know, the one without the screen mm. or anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was the cheapest thing they made, and it was great, but after about 18 months, it stopped working, and technically it was under warranty, but this is 20 years ago. Customer service was appalling, and you always wondered whether they were going to come up with an excuse as to why you'd misused it. And so I rang them up, and I got somebody unusually who knew what they were talking about we did some tests and then she sort of said will you be in at nine o'clock in the morning and i went yes but why and she sort of said uh, right a courier will be at your door at nine o'clock in the morning uh, we'll take the device away if we can't fix it in two days uh, we'll send you a new one and th- you know like i said this was 20 years ago and yeah. I was thinking, this is not happening <laughs> but at, at the dot of nine o'clock the next morning uh, the courier turned up i put the device in the box and two days later a new ipod mini arrived with a note to say they couldn't fix it so he was a replacement and i thought at that moment if this is what they do for the smallest cheapest product they mm. make mm. how will they handle a laptop and I've been an Apple user ever since, and I have to say, my experience of when there is a problem is still the same. They sort it very quickly, and they do what they say. You know, so I think that's an example of what I was talking about. They yeah. not only met my expectations, they blew them away. Yeah, and and I have spent probably many thousands of pounds. I was going to say ever yeah. since. They've recouped the benefits of that, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the concept of customer ease and wowing the customer all rolled into one there where you just they're just making it incredibly easy for you to fix your problem, but at the same time doing it in a way that exceeds your expectations. So a great example. Thank you. And on, on the flip side of that, what's the most terrible experience you can recall either recently or in the past that um, typifies the opposite of what we've just been talking about? I think, sadly, my example is a healthcare one, and right. it's very recent. I was referred by my optometrist to ophthalmology just to have something looked at. And the experience was absolutely dreadful. I kind of turned up, checked in. A nurse shouted my name, didn't introduce herself, sort of led me through, told me to sit down, started doing tests, didn't tell me why they were doing tests, told me to go and sit somewhere else. And uh, then a person who I assumed was the consultant came and shouted my name, took me into a room that didn't have a, a name on the door, didn't introduce himself and um, started, a, uh, you know, asked me to sit down and started approaching me with some eye drops. Now, I'd sort of played along with it so long, but um, at that point I kind of snapped, but in a quite a nice way, I think. And I just said to him, can you just stop? Can we start again? I'm Marcus Einstein. And he sort of looked at me and I went, and you are? <laughs> and then I said, he sort of introduced himself. And then I kind of went, and what what are those drops and what do you, what are you going to do with them and why are you wanting to do it? At which point he didn't immediately ask the question. He asked me what I did for a living. Uh, and when I explained to him that I was a healthcare quality and governance consultant, um, his approach changed somewhat. However, you know, I'm assuming that that's the service I got when he didn't know who I was. So that's what everybody got. And I don't think that's typical of the NHS. I've had great, great experience in the NHS. But I think that's my most recent one of, on so many levels, that was wrong. (laughs) So, yes, that's my bad one. Okay, no, no, uh, uh, and quite terrifying for certain people, I'd imagine. And uh, yeah, very very good example, very good example. Uh, And a final question, which is... I guess, based on your experience, I mean, what, what's the one thing you think you've learned throughout your 
your many and varied career that you perhaps couldn't have learned at business school? I think I probably learned a lot that couldn't be taught in business school, but I've never been to business school. So I, I, I think I would take, again, an experience from healthcare. When I was on my very first ward as a student nurse, I was 18 years old. I'd been a student nurse for 15 weeks. Ten of those had been in college. But, you know, you put a uniform on and go into a healthcare setting and you are a nurse uh, to people. And we had a patient admitted with his family and they were all really aggressive. He was really aggressive. <laughs> sort of launched into me. I did not know what had hit me. And it, uh, I, I did what I could and went and got somebody more senior. And a piece of advice that the staff nurse I was working with gave me stayed with me throughout my career. And it applies in a healthcare setting particularly, I think. But I think it also works in other situations. If someone is angry assume they are scared and behave in a way that will reduce their fear and anxiety. Mm. And that will probably rectify the situation. And I have used that so many times. It doesn't mm. always work, you know, uh, but in a healthcare setting, you know, people are scared. They don't know what's happening the family are petrified. I can only imagine what it's been like for the last 18 months when people have been admitted on their own and have no access to their support network. But it changes your approach. You don't take the attack personally. Mm. But what you do do is say, what can I do to help you not be afraid anymore? Mm. And, and, and that, that one, it insulates you but it also nearly always works. And I'm pretty sure I couldn't have learned that in a business school. No, no, no. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, on that note, thank you for giving up such a lot of time. And as I said before, you know, experience and imparting so much um, wisdom, I guess, in, in terms of this whole subject here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, well, let's, uh, let's look forward to the reaction from people to see whether... Uh, Anyone in the life sciences sector agrees with you or disagrees with you on some of the points you've been making or indeed in healthcare generally? So Yeah, I guess I'd be disappointed if they didn't disagree with me on some things. So, um, but no, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real that It's very rare people, anyone lets me talk this long so, <laughs> and actually listen. So thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Lovely. Thanks, Marcus. That's great. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.